Today's scripture reading, which you can find in your bulletin, comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. And you can follow along as I read it aloud. This is the word of the Lord. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. It's been about two weeks since I've last preached, but in the last sermon I preached here as a church, uh, I, I mentioned how I think in this next year, and I guess we're not looking at calendar year, but in this next academic year, uh, I'd like to see some growth in our church community in two specific areas. First, I want to see some growth in the area of corporate prayer, uh, are coming together and praying with other believers and lifting up uh, prayers to God. And second, uh, I want to see us grow a little bit in the area of overcoming some of our fears. And obviously, I think these are two areas where we're never going to feel like we've reached perfection and we're always going to feel like there is more room for growth. But I do think if we can make some strides in these two areas over the next year, uh, we will see some amazing things from God. And so how are we going to know whether we are actually growing in these things? And uh, I don't like using uh, external metrics. Like, I don't like the idea of just, you know, counting how many people are going to prayer meetings and, and so forth. Uh, but rather, I, I think the way that we can gauge our growth in terms of are we growing in these two areas is uh, we can base it upon our hearts. So how will we know if we're growing uh, in corporate prayer? Well, is a desire within our hearts to pray with others is that desire growing? Because I think if the desire is there, then <clears throat> sure, we should see more people at prayer meeting, but I also understand the reality is people 
uh, have <clears throat> very busy schedules and may not logistically be able to make it out to prayer meetings. But if there's some kind of disappointment or heartache in your heart because you're not able to go to prayer meetings, I think that's a good sign of growth. I think that's reflective of a desire that is growing in your heart to pray. Now, in terms of our fear, in terms of the second area, I think we can gauge growth based on uh, how liberated we feel, how much freedom we feel. Do we feel free to follow Jesus, to obey his commands? Do we feel free to have a faith that is public and not private and kept to ourselves? Or do we feel very anxious all the time, very risk-averse? Are we too concerned with the opinions of others? Uh, I think those are some questions that we can ask in terms of judging whether we are growing in the area of overcoming some of our fears. So those are the two things that I'm laying out for this next year. Now, in terms of the preaching, here's what we're going to do. In the fall, we're going to focus on the first thing. We're going to focus on the idea of prayer. And uh, the way I want you to look at these two things, prayer and fear, is not so much a step one and a step two because they are kind of interrelated. Uh, one of the ways in which we are going to uh, cast out fear in our hearts is uh, it's going to be through prayer. Uh, and I know for some of us, if you are going to actually pray with others, you're going to have to overcome some fears because some of us are afraid of praying out loud in front of other people. So there, there's kind of an intermixture happening. But in terms of preaching, uh, the way we're going to do this is we're going to address each topic one by one. And so in the fall, we're going to look at the topic of prayer. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to actually go through the Bible and see some of the prayers that we see in the Bible. And the neat thing about that, at least for me, is um, maybe not for you, but for me, <laughs> it keeps things interesting because you can go through different parts of Scripture and uh, look at a wide range of genres and characters and different aspects or parts of history uh, in the Bible. And so we're starting that today, and today the first prayer we're going to look at is the one by Abraham here. Now, I understand the text doesn't explicitly say that Abraham prayed to the Lord, uh, but most people consider this to be Abraham praying to God because prayer is essentially some kind of personal communication with God, and that is exactly what Abraham is doing. And he is praying this very personal and this very unique kind of prayer because he is asking God to spare this city, Sodom, from destruction. But I also want to give some context and situate this prayer in its proper place because this passage is actually part of a, of, of a larger story that takes place in Genesis. Uh, you know, it would be a little bit like uh, watching or seeing that speech in A Few Good Men between Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholas. Nicholas? Nicholson? Nicholson. <laughs> I always get them confused. One's a golfer, one's the actor. Uh, seeing that, uh, you know, that dialogue take place and he's like, you know, uh, I want the truth. And then, you know, Jack says, you can't handle the truth. I if you just watch that dialogue outside of the context of the movie, uh, you miss a lot, right? This prayer is kind of like that. It's this very intense dialogue that's taking place between Abraham and God, but it's also taking place in the context of a larger narrative and a larger story. And this story actually takes place in Genesis, as early as Genesis chapter 13. And uh, what happens there is Abraham and his nephew Lot, there is some strife over land, and they're running out of space. Now, I know uh, people in New York, you're kind of like, how do you run out of space when you have such vast land when many of you live in these tiny apartments? Well, the reason why they're running out of space is because they're uh, farmers. They have livestock. The livestock live off the land, and so they need a lot of land in order for them to, uh, I guess, survive and live their life. And so what they end up doing is Abraham says to Lot, Lot, 
you choose the land that you want. You go in the way that you want to go, and I'll go in the way that uh, I guess you don't go, right? I'll occupy the land that you don't occupy. And Lot does what any good investor would do. He looks for the better investment, and he surveys. He looks at the Jordan Valley, and he says, this would be good land for my livestock, and he decides to settle there. Now, Sodom is located in that area, and he settles in the city of Sodom. And even as early as Genesis 13, we're told that this city was a wicked place with sinners who were against the Lord. Now, this chapter, chapter 18, kind of picks up on this story of Lot and Sodom, and not much has changed in terms of how we are supposed to view Sodom as readers. Sodom is still a very wicked place. And if you look at verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Now, the fact that there is an outcry, and uh, I think it's a little bit clearer even in the Hebrew, uh, the word for outcry, it tells us that something is deeply wrong with the city. And what is wrong with the city? Well, first, there is injustice or there is oppression of some sort that is taking place in the city. And that's confirmed if you read passages like Ezekiel 16, uh, where it says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and, her sister, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And so at least from the perspective of the prophet Ezekiel, the sin of Sodom, they, didn't, they had pride, they had a lot of wealth, but they did not care for the poor and needy. The second thing we see is if you continue to read the story in Genesis 19, uh, you would see that the inhabitants of Sodom, they actually attempt to sexually assault two visitors, two of the men who were actually sent by God, two men who visited Sodom. And what's astounding about that is that it doesn't say it was just a, a couple people, but what the passage says is that the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house with the intent to attack these two visitors. So it's not just a few bad apples, but it is the entire city that is trying to do this wicked act to these two visitors. And of course, as I mentioned just now, these two men were actually God's angels, and they were sent by God to investigate the wickedness of Sodom. And I think we can guess what report they gave to God, and they probably said, yeah, Sodom is a very wicked city. And what eventually happens is God judges this city and completely destroys it. Now, if you're reading this, and uh, I imagine some people would read this and you would be a little bit troubled by what God does here, and probably for a couple of reasons. First, we might wonder, why does God have to destroy the entire city? Uh, why do the sins of uh, certain people translate into the judgment of many? And second, we might say, you know, on the surface, it does seem like God is being a little bit harsh here and a little bit unforgiving. There's no second chance. There's no rehabilitation. There's no partial destruction. It's just complete judgment and complete destruction. Why would God do that? But you see, that is why this prayer is actually very important in terms of the context of the greater story because it gives us a little bit more color and nuance into what is going on here and into God's heart. I do know we live in a culture that responds very much to headlines, and uh, most of you probably do this because I do this as well. You read a headline, but you don't really read the full story, <laughs> and then you, uh, your news knowledge is based on the headlines that you see. But that's not a great way to understand what's actually happening because you miss the nuances. 
and nuances are important in order to understand the entire story. And you think about it, if there was a media publication uh, in the days of Abraham, it might read like this, God destroys Sodom. And with that kind of headline, it would be easy to conclude that God must be very harsh, God must be uh, some kind of terror. But you see what this prayer does, I think, is it gives us more insight into the character of God and into the heart of God. And that is actually not what this prayer leads us to conclude about God. And so we're going to look at this prayer. Now, one of the striking things about this prayer is the way Abraham speaks to God. You know, Abraham is pretty bold here. Uh, and I don't know if you heard it, just kind of the back and forth and the back and forth of Abraham just raising question after question after question to God as though God were in a position of subservience, right? God shouldn't be in a position of subservience. Abraham should. But the way that Abraham is raising all these questions to God makes it seem as though God is taking the, in the position of uh, the subservient one. You know, there's a Jewish scholar named Robert Alter. And uh, what he says is that you know, in verse 23, that Hebrew word for draw near, it, it's actually a word that's oftentimes associated with the court of law, like when someone uh, steps forward to make some kind of legal plea. And so if that's true, then it's kind of as though Abraham is grilling God, right? Uh, I don't know if anybody watched uh, any of the uh, confirmation hearings for Supreme Court. I know it's an explosive political <laughs> topic, so uh, I'm not making comment politically, but just the act of the confirmation. Uh, I watched, I happened to watch, uh, uh, you know, some of it this week. And, uh, you know, what usually happens at these kinds of hearings when somebody is being confirmed uh, for a certain position is, uh, you know, they sit in a chair and then you have the Senate Judiciary Committee and they're, they're just kind of sitting all around you. But what's interesting is if you notice the way the room is situated, they're actually sitting from an elevated position, right? So they're looking down at a, uh, a Judge Kavanaugh as they're questioning him. And essentially what they're doing is they're grilling him, right? They're grilling him about his past, his past opinions, his uh, emails, whatever it is, they are grilling him. And I, you know, I heard David Letterman did that when he would interview people on his show. He would keep his uh, chair a little bit higher <laughs> than his guests as kind of a power play. I hear some, uh, some people do it in their offices because uh, it sends a, you know, an implicit message in terms of the orientation of power. Robert Alter also thinks, you know, scribes edited the original manuscript in verse 22. So when it says, Abraham stood before the Lord, he actually thinks the original probably said the Lord stood before Abraham, but scribes changed it because that would have been such a blasphemous thought. How would the Lord stand before Abraham when the Lord is God and Abraham is merely a human? And I don't know if that's true. Uh, I'm not academic enough to investigate it deeper. But even if that were not true, I think either way, you still get a sense that what Abraham is doing is quite bold in the way that he is speaking to God. But at the same time, Abraham isn't being uh, arrogant about it either. I think he's being bold, but he understands that he is being bold. And the reason I say that is he still knows his place before God. He understands who he is before God. Uh, that's why it says in verse 27, I am but dust and ashes. That's why he says several times, you know, let not the Lord be angry. Right? I'm going to ask you another question but let not the Lord be angry. He knows that he is not the one who should be in a position of grilling God and it should be the other way around. But what is crazy about this passage is God allows Abraham to pray to him in such a way. 
in such a bold way. And the question for us is why? Why? I think there's at least two reasons. First, look at the basis of Abraham's questions. He is basing these questions on the very character of God. He's not approaching God and saying, God, on the basis of my personal opinion, my own sense of what is right and wrong, how could you do this to Sodom? He's not saying that. And, you know, quite frankly, in a hyper-individualistic culture like ours, uh, that's probably how many people approach God. But look how Abraham questions God. In verse 25, he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, that's a rhetorical question right there. And basically what he's saying is this. God, you are a God of justice. Your character, your attribute, you are righteous and you are just. And based on that character, would you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? Because if you do that, that is not consistent with who you are. And you see, he's praying and he is interceding on behalf of Sodom, again, not on the basis of what he wants, not on the basis of his own personal opinion, but on the very basis of who God is. You know, at the same time, Abraham, I think, at this point, probably knows God in a deeper way. Uh, he knows that God isn't only uh, a God who has this kind of cold sense of justice, but he also knows God's compassion and his mercy as well. I think Abraham, at this point, has experienced God's grace and mercy and compassion because uh, Abraham's messed up. For example, in Genesis 12, Abraham struggled with trusting God. And uh, when God says, I'm giving you this land, what Abraham did is he went to Egypt because of a famine and it showed a lack of trust uh, with God. And even so, even after that, God still entered into covenant with Abraham. God still kept in relationship with Abraham. So I imagine Abraham knows that God is just and holy. But I also think at this point, he knows that God is also compassionate and full of grace and mercy. And therefore, God is able to respond with that grace and mercy. Look at verse 26. He says, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city. Now, why 50? Well, scholars say at the time, 50 probably would have been half the population. So small cities would have 100 people. He says, there are 50 righteous in the city. I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham continues to trim down that number. Well, what about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And every single time, what does God say? For the sake of the righteous, I will not destroy the city. Now that tells us something important about God. It tells us this. His desire to save the righteous outweighs his desire to destroy the wicked. He is willing to save the many based on the righteousness of a few. And therefore, it would be inaccurate to conclude that God's heart, God's yearning, God's desire is for destruction and for judgment. If anything, what this prayer shows is God's heart to show mercy and to preserve life. But at the same time, he cannot compromise in his just and righteous character to do it because it would violate the very integrity of who he is. Second reason why Abraham is able to approach God in this way is because he is in a personal, intimate relationship with him because they entered into a covenant together. 
a covenant. It's, I think it's a little bit like, uh, well, marriage relationship would probably be the perfect illustration for a covenant, but uh, you can also think about it like this. It's, it's almost like a parent-child relationship. You know, sometimes um, children will boldly question their parents about something uh, because they want some reassurance or because, you know, they even have their own sense of what's right and what's wrong. And so, uh, you know, this didn't actually happen, but this is illustrative of what might happen with me and my oldest daughter. Uh, suppose I say to my oldest daughter, I say, hey, you know, tomorrow we'll get some ice cream. We can't get it today, but we'll get it tomorrow. You know what she'll probably do the whole day? She just ask question after question about the ice cream. So we're getting ice cream tomorrow, right? Yes. Tomorrow, right? Yes. What time? Uh, I don't know. We'll get it in the afternoon. Okay. Can I get mint chocolate chip? Yes. Are we going to go with mommy? Yes. Right? And she'll just continually ask over and over and over. Suppose that next day, ice cream time, as soon as she wakes up, we're getting ice cream today, right? Suppose they say, you know what? Now. Right? Now. Tantrum, crying, right? And what, in the midst of that, you know what she's going to say? But you said, right, you said we were going to get ice cream. And she is going to call me out. She's going to say, didn't you say we were going to get ice cream today? Did you tell me a lie? Didn't you always tell me that it's not good to lie? Why aren't we getting ice cream when you said we would get ice cream? And she's going to be very bold about it, even somewhat demanding about it. Why? Well, I think a child and a parent relationship, there is that close personal relationship, and she knows she will always be my daughter, and I will always be her father. I think similarly, Abraham has that kind of intimate personal relationship with God. God has made several promises concerning him, him and his offspring, and uh, concerning land and concerning blessing. In Genesis 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham and says concerning Abraham and his covenant, I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. And that establishes an important relationship. A personal relationship is established there. And that's part of the reason why I think Abraham can approach God in this way in this prayer. Now, what I've always found strange about this prayer is uh, Abraham stops. He stops at 10. Why does he stop at 10? I don't know why he stops at 10. Uh, maybe he just kind of lost his nerve. Who knows? But I wonder why he didn't continue and say, God, what about five righteous? God, what about one righteous? If there is one righteous person in the city, will you still destroy the entire city? And I guess we have to kind of imagine if Abraham continued to pray that way, what would God have said? I think God would probably have said yes. I will spare the judgment upon this city for the sake of one righteous. Now the problem with Sodom is that there was not even one righteous person. But the reason why I think we can confidently say that God would do that is because God ended up doing that in the person of Jesus Christ. A few thousand years later, a righteous one, a truly righteous one would come and he would come and save the many. He would come and spare sinners such as us from judgment and from destruction. Romans 5 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience 
the many will be made righteous. You know what that's saying? It's saying this, God is not only willing to save the many based upon the righteousness of one, but it's saying that is what God actually did in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Abraham tried, right? Abraham attempted it to save the city through his intercession. But guess what? He couldn't do it because there was not even one righteous to save the city. But a better Abraham, a better intercessor would come in the Son of God and Jesus Christ and he would be able to do it and not just save the city of Sodom but save the entire world from the judgment that our very sin deserves. And how did he do it? He did it by offering his own righteous blood upon the cross. You see, the brilliance of the cross is God could show grace and mercy and compassion at the same time and not at the expense of his own character and his own justice. He could forgive sin without violating his holiness. Why? The penalty of sin is paid. It's paid, and judgment is poured out, but it's not poured out poured out upon you and I, or you and me. It's poured out upon a substitute in Christ. Now, do you know what that means in terms of how we pray? That has a lot of implications in terms of the way we pray. I actually think it means we can be bolder than Abraham was in his approach to God. Why? Not only is our covenantal relationship with God even more secure because it is based not upon our own obedience but upon the obedience of Jesus, but we also have greater knowledge of God, of his promises, of his character through his word. And in view of that, how can we not be bold in our prayer? Now, by being bold in our prayers, I think you probably know this, but obviously I don't mean bold in this way. God, give me a million dollars, right? <laughs> Let me be so bold to ask God, give me a million dollars. That's not the kind of boldness we see in Abraham's prayer, and God never promises that. But God does promise something far greater than a couple million dollars. He promises blessing to the nations. He promises life eternal. He promises peace and joy and fullness in the spirit. He promises access to power in his spirit. And therefore, we should be bold in asking God for big things that are in accordance with his character and accordance with his promises. We should pray prayers like this. God, bless all of New York City and bring revival to everyone in New York City. Revive dead churches. Awaken sleepy Christians. Bring people who have never come to know you Show them your beauty and your glory so that they would repent and know you. God, reveal yourself to my mother, my father, my brother, my sister in a powerful way. They're far from you or they don't know you and they've never known you. God, do something mighty and powerful in their lives. God, open the eyes of everyone in the industry that I work in and show them your wonderful grace. I think we can be very bold in the ways that we pray just as Abraham was bold. I even think we can keep pestering God about these things just as Abraham is kind of pestering God about these things because these are the things that we know for certain are in accordance with God's character and God's desire and God's very promises. 
You know, one thing I've noticed that uh, from people whose faith I, you know, I have a great deal of respect for, one of the things I notice is they often pray very bold prayers. Uh, they would say, God, you know, almost in a demanding way, they would say, God, you said you were going to bless the nations, so I'm calling upon you to do it. Bless the nations. Bless Bulgaria, bless Turkey, bless Georgia, bless China, bless the U.S., bless the nations. And rather than arrogance, I actually think what that shows is a great deal of faith because it means you truly, deep down in your heart, believe that God is faithful, that God is of righteous character, and that God will keep his promises. And as we pray together, we ought to pray in such ways. Uh, this month, uh, you know, we kind of had a, in the summer, we usually take a break from our ministry activities. And uh, as September begins, as people are back from vacations and all of those kind of things, you know, our, our ministry activities are going to start up again. And, uh, you know, on Thursday evening, we're going to meet for prayer and worship in the office. And if you're free on a Thursday night and you want to pray, feel free to come and we can pray these bold prayers. You know, Men's and Women's Fellowship is going to get going again and uh, they meet once a month. And in those meetings, there's going to be opportunity to pray. As you gather together, pray together and pray boldly. And, uh, you know, maybe you're not sure how to pray or what to pray because you feel like you don't really know the Bible well enough. Well, if you want to grow more in the knowledge of the Word, uh, come to Bible studies. We're going to start Bible studies on Wednesday evenings and uh, we're going to look at 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And if evenings are no good, I know there's morning prayer meetings on Tuesday and Thursday mornings uh, on 40th and Lex. And so if nothing else fits in your calendar aside from mornings, go to morning prayer. And if none of these fit into your schedule, start your own thing. Just get some people that you know, people willing to pray. Go to your house, go to somebody else's apartment, and just pray together. It doesn't have to be in this church. It doesn't have to be with people from this church. Just gather with other people and pray. And I think if we can do that, and if we can take a step forward and really grow in these areas, uh, I think we're going to experience a lot of the power of God. And so as we pray together, let's do it boldly. Let's call upon God to revive New York City. Let's pray that God revive the hearts of the spiritually dead. Let's pray that God would revive our families, our places of work, our governments, our neighborhoods, and the nations of the world. Abraham did it for one city, for Sodom. But we have a better foundation on which we can do it because we stand upon the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray together.